0: This episode is brought to you by NerdWallet. NerdWallet has helpful tools and tips for all things personal finance. What's the difference between a Roth and traditional IRA again? Turn to the nerds. Should you pay down debt or save for retirement? Turn to the nerds. What kind of credit card is best for you? Yep, turn to the nerds. They take the complicated and make it easy to understand. This really is a no-brainer. For all your money questions, turn to the nerds at nerdwallet.com. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is Allie. How are you, Allie?
1: I'm doing well. How are you? Now you've had the baby? Yeah, now we're... In the future?
0: Yeah, in the future. This one is probably, I think it's coming out at the end of my maternity leave. So uh, we really appreciate all the guests who filled in for the last several weeks while I've been on maternity leave. So I'm thanking them from the past and the future. I will be back very soon after this one. Tonight's story, it was actually suggested by Apendra. At least half of it was. This is going to be a double header. When I had to move a case off our list, I put it in our Facebook group that I would pick a case that people commented. Any case that people put in the comments, I would find one from that. And Apendra had suggested this one before. So it makes sense he jumped in that thread and was like, hey, you need to do the Eldorado Jane Doe. It's on the short side of a story, so we're actually pairing it with another Doe case, um, the case of Joseph Newton Chandler. And we'll get to that later. But to start with the El Dorado Jane Doe, our story opens in El Dorado, Arkansas, on July 10th, 1991, with a young woman who was known as Kelly Carr to some friends, Cheryl Ann Wick to others, And as Mercedes at the club, she worked as a dancer. She would become known as the Eldorado Jane Doe, but for the sake of this episode, we're going to call her Kelly. That is the name she was going by most actively at the time of her death. And honestly, I just, I feel better giving her an actual name rather than a Doe-related moniker if we can. It just humanizes her more, in my view. Kelly had been in a relationship with a man named James McAlphin for at least a year. He was in jail for three years, getting out in May of 1990. So we know they met after that point. He told family that they met in Dallas, and we know Kelly worked in Dallas. She was arrested there for prostitution in 1990 using the name Cheryl Ann Wick. She also worked at a fast food restaurant using this name, but with a fake Social Security number. You may wonder why someone was working at a fast food restaurant, likely for low wages, when she was probably making far more money in other ways. But this tells me that she was trying to get out of the sex industry. And there are a few other things in this case that come up that make me wonder if she was even in the sex industry of her own free will or not. And we'll get into that later. McAlphin will sometimes be referred to as her boyfriend slash pimp. His abuse would land her in the ER more than once. Friends have reported that Kelly was terrified of him. Police were called to the hospital due to the frequency of her visits. It's reported that they tried to get her to leave. The general feeling of the police officers was that she was being forced into sex work and into staying with McElfin. The people who were there talking to her, feeling this way is another piece that makes me lean towards this not being consensual. As happens, between what she thought was her love for him and what was certainly her fear for him, she stayed with him. And that is until June of 1991. She left him in spite of the repeated threats he made against her life. She moved in with a friend while she tried to get herself sorted out and free of McAlphin. On July 10th, 1991, McAlphin called Kelly and asked her if she would meet him. He was offering to give her some money and she told her roommate that she needed the money to send some presents back home to her children. It was just a short distance from the apartment to the hotel, so Kelly had walked over.
1: Kelly went to the hotel where McAlphin was staying and went to his room. A neighbor at the hotel knocked on the door to ask McAlphin to return something he had borrowed, and when the door opened, Kelly told him he needed to talk to McAlphin. He said it was clear that they were arguing and Kelly left and went into the parking lot. McAlphin went after her. He hit her and physically dragged her back into the room when the argument became even louder. The neighbour, obviously feeling uncomfortable, he had gone back into his room in the meantime. Kelly's roommate was walking past the hotel when she heard a gunshot. She said her first thought was for Kelly. She ran over and saw Kelly lying on the floor, dead from the gunshot wound. She and the others then saw McAlphin take off in his car. McAlphin eventually turned himself in. He had a different story of what happened. He claims that Kelly took the gun and she shot herself. But this doesn't fit in with any of the evidence and is a ridiculous claim, to be honest. He took a plea deal and pled guilty to second-degree murder. He spent 15 years in jail. At the scene, they found an Arkansas ID for Cheryl N. Wick with a picture that matched the victim in the hotel room. When they investigated this further, using the name and birth date on the ID, they found Cheryl's parents living in Minneapolis. Except Cheryl was living there as well. The real Cheryl N. Wick was alive and well and on the phone with police. Police showed her photos of the person using her name and she didn't recognise Kelly. However, Cheryl had also worked as a dancer She worked for a company in Minneapolis, and she thinks her ID was stolen out of her purse when she left it unattended. Because of this coincidence of the victim taking the identity of another dancer, police believe it's likely Minneapolis is somewhere Kelly lived and worked at some point. But possibly briefly, since they couldn't find people up there who recognised her. So when the investigators entered the crime scene... They believe they had the ID for the victim, only to find out that she was actually a Jane Doe. They used some other items found to try to retrace Kelly's steps. The items that pointed the furthest away from Arkansas were menus from a restaurant in Virginia Beach, Virginia. A flyer from the recording studio in Wiley, Texas was also found. And for those geographically challenged like myself, Wiley is near Dallas.
0: Another item was a diary page from August of 1990. She names two people in the entry, Tyrone and Gail, and she refers to a boyfriend simply as he. It's been interpreted that both McAlphin was the boyfriend, but also that Tyrone could have been the boyfriend. It's believed they were possibly in Shreveport, Louisiana when these entries were written. Personally, it sounds To me, like Tyrone was the boyfriend, and they were both living with Gail. In the last entry, she wrote, I thought we could leave today, but no such luck. Gail came home today. She didn't seem very happy to see us still here. Tyrone gave her a hundred dollars. He can't get the stupid VW to work. So he doesn't know what to do. I just want to get to Texas and work. So to me, it sounds like Tyrone gave Gail money to appease her for letting them stay there and that Kelly and Tyrone planned on using the VW that he couldn't fix to get back to Texas. Then again, maybe Tyrone was just a friend trying to help Kelly and McAlphin get back to Dallas and gave Gale money on behalf of his friends. As far as I can tell, Tyrone and Gale haven't been fully identified. Tyrone is believed to have been Kelly's pimp at one point. Since this is the same range, we know McAlphin met Kelly as Cheryl It's very possible that Tyrone and Gail wouldn't have much to add to figuring out who Kelly was. They probably knew her as Cheryl, Kelly, or Mercedes. They probably didn't know her under her real name. Also found was what appeared to be a family Bible, because it had several names written in it, the way family Bibles tend to, and most of them had the same surname. And the family was located living in Irving, Texas, which is also in the Dallas area. The family was obviously not biological relatives, as they weren't white, and Kelly was, but they said she had lived with them for a period of time in either the late 80s or the early 90s. But again, she was going by a false identity at this point. Photographs were found, which is one of the things that makes the story frustrating. Investigators don't have to rely on reconstructions or sketches or morgue photos here. Kelly left many photos of herself behind. Those pictures just haven't gotten to the people who can identify her yet, but they vary from full hair and makeup pictures to hair in a ponytail, casual pictures. So there's a variety of pictures. So it's almost surprising that nobody has been able to recognize her yet. But at this point, we're gonna have to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors.
1: You're going to spend a third of your life wrapped up in your sheets. So are they taking care of you the way they should be? At brooklinen.com, you get high-quality sheets and bedding that you deserve at an accessible price. Brooklinen was founded in April 2014 by a husband and wife team. They have a simple philosophy, and that is we deserve simple, beautiful home essentials, but without the luxury price. Most high-end bedding is marked up by 300% by the time it reaches the store and cuts out unnecessary markups and manufacturing waste in order to offer exquisite designs and exceptional savings across their whole collection. This is luxury bedding underpriced. You have to try these sheets today. My Brooklinen sheets are definitely the best sheets I've ever slept in. I love mine and I know that you'll love them too. Brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer just for Insight listeners. Get $20 off with free shipping when you use promo code SITE at brooklinen.com. In fact, Brooklinen is so confident that you will love your new sheets. They offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all their sheets and comforters. There is no reason not to give these sheets a try. The only way to get $20 off with free shipping is to use promo code SITE at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com promo code site, Brooklinen. These are the best sheets ever. Kelly told multiple people different things about her past. She said she was a runaway from Florida, but then she told others she ran away from Louisiana, went to Minnesota and then moved to Dallas. She told workers at the Salvation Army in Arkansas that she had a child who'd been taken away from her by social services in Texas. Because she had a different name at the time, she couldn't get this child back. On the other hand, she told others that she actually had two children and they were being raised by her mum. Now, it's possible both of these are true. She may have had two kids being raised by her mother and then had a third while living in Texas and lost custody of that child. She also had stories of her father being involved in the mafia and her being in witness protection, but there isn't any evidence of this. Kelly also told someone that she once used to lure at truck stops, she would distract the truckers and get them out of their cabs while her companion would rob them. She said one of these robberies went bad and the truck driver was killed. And there is an unsolved murder of a truck driver in Oklahoma from 1988. Dwayne McCorkendale was a 28-year-old father of twin girls from Kansas. He had gotten out of his cab to call his wife from a payphone This was known because he mentioned it over the CB radio that truck drivers often use to keep in touch with one another. It is possible that robbers also had a CB radio and they listened for comments like this. Dwayne was found by the payphone, having been shot in the back. During the investigation, other trucks reported a brown pinto that had a CB radio harassing them. The driver would cut them off, and another truck said that he was stopped at one of these points and a young woman asked him for drugs. The reports are that the Pinto had three people in it, a white man, a black man, and a white woman. So was Kelly this woman. Her story matches what happened, and the description matches the woman asking for drugs. We don't know, and it's possibly that we never will. There was a letter from the police to the FBI, and it said that Kelly Lee Carr had said she was wanted for bank robbery in Virginia, but they couldn't find any bank robbery that would match and it's believed this story is untrue, like the mafia and the witness protection stories.
0: Now, McAlphin claims he knows who she is. He even claims he met her mother and sister when they visited from Florida, though he's also said that she was from Oklahoma. He claims if we knew who Kelly was for real, it would close other cold cases. Does he mean a missing persons case? Does he mean other crimes Kelly was involved in? Or is he just full of it and enjoying toying with the authorities on this? He's offered to release all of the information he has if someone will pay him $4,000 for that information. He did give some of it away for free, though obviously we don't know how true any of it is. He claims that Kelly was taken from her family by force and was turned out on the streets by 16, She was part of a whole group of trafficking victims. She had a pimp named JJ and later left him with the help of the previously named Tyrone, who then became her pimp. And McAlphin, the Boy Scout that he was, rescued her from Tyrone and took her to Louisiana. He also said while she began as a trafficking victim, she chose sex work as an adult while she was with him. He wasn't forcing her. She chose it. So we'll just go ahead and call that out. A trafficked teenager who's been passed between pimps and physically abused by them, like McAlphin did, is never choosing this as an adult. Making a choice implies there were other options. She tried to leave and McAlphin killed her. That's not a choice. She had no education, no training and years of abuse and then death when she tried to get away. There wasn't a choice here. She was not choosing this. But back to McAlphin's claims. He said that this would close other cold cases if he revealed Kelly's true identity. If you remember back to our episode on the Fort Worth 3, to refresh everyone's memories or anyone who didn't hear that episode, Julianne Mosley, Rachel Trulica, and Lisa Renee Wilson went shopping together shortly before Christmas in 1974. They never returned and have never been seen again. McAlphin claims that Kelly grew up with them in the same sex trafficking circle in Dallas-Fort Worth area. He also claims he has met them, and like Kelly, they're now willing members of the prostitution ring as adults. Now, I don't believe that he met the Fort Worth Three or that Kelly was friends with them That would mean all three of those women never left the Dallas Fort Worth area. They were abducted and put out on the streets where they lived. That's not likely. Human trafficking doesn't generally work that way.
1: A description of Kelly let's start with what stands out the most. She was 5'10 or 5'11, which is about 178 centimetres tall. And this would exclude a large number of missing women from being possibilities. Even at this height, she was about 160 pounds or 72.5 kilograms. So that's a small build for that height. Her hair was naturally brown, but she normally kept it blonde. She took very good care of herself. She always had it professionally cut and colored, and she wore relatively expensive clothing for someone who was pretty much lived a transient lifestyle living between various hotels. It appears she had recently stopped dyeing her hair, and it was about shoulder length at the time of her death. Her age range is fairly wide. McAlphin was born in 1964 and claims that she was older than him. She looks younger, though. In pictures with a lot of makeup on, she does look older, but the pictures without makeup, she looks young, so the age for including matches is 18 to 30 years old. This would put her birth year between 1961 to 1973 personal opinion though, I'd lean towards the later years, but it's possible that she's older than what she appears. Her eyes were light blue and stood out because of their colour. She also had a lot of freckles, which you can't see well in most photos because she generally did wear a lot of makeup. She had a birthmark under her left breast and scars on her torso that were probably left over from previous abuse.
0: A lot of missing people have been ruled out from being Kelly or, as she's known, the El Dorado Jane Doe. There's a strong possibility here, though, that she was never reported missing. And looking at missing persons reports aren't really going to help us here. We saw this with Lori Erica Ruff, the topic of our very first episode. In 2010, she took her own life and her husband learned her identity was false. When she was finally identified as Kimberly McLean, We learned that she had never been reported missing because she wasn't technically missing. At 18, she told her mother she wanted no further contact and she moved away, which was her right as an adult. Did Kelly move out and cut her parents out of her life? Did Kelly run away as a teen and was never reported missing? Is it like McAlphin said that she had been trafficked? If she had fallen into drugs as a teenager, she would have been the perfect victim of traffickers while researching the story i found this interesting relatively recent news story from april of 2017 about a 15-year-old girl her name was stacy duke and she was murdered and at the time she was using a fake name and a fake age she had been in and out of foster care as her mother battled addiction issues she had run away from her various foster and group homes before but when she left the last time, nobody ever reported her missing. Could the Eldorado Jane Doe be like Stacy Duke? Only she wandered far enough away from where she ran away from that nobody could recognize her under her true identity. I think that's a possibility here. Our second story is trying to uncover the real identity of a man who's known to his co-workers and his landlord as Joseph Newton Chandler. But before we get into his story, we're going to take one last break for our second sponsor.
1: Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Finding great talent can be tough. Thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's what makes ZipRecruiter different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't rely on job candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter find a quality job candidate in just 24 hours. There's no juggling of emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place. With ZipRecruiter's easy to use dashboard, Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, Insight listeners can post jobs to ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com site. That's ZipRecruiter.com site. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com site.
0: In July 2002, neighbors in an apartment building in East Lake, Ohio, called the apartment manager to complain about a smell coming from another apartment. The manager called the police, I assume after not getting an answer when he knocked on the door of the apartment. The responding officer entered the apartment but had to turn around and leave right away. He had to wait to get an air pack from the station to attempt to enter again. That's how bad the smell was. Once investigators were able to enter, they found the body of an older man in the bathroom, dead from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. Based on the advanced decomposition and the warm summer conditions inside the apartment, it was determined that he had probably died a week previously.
1: A man was known as Joe Chandler, and he was an electrical engineer. He was known as a man who kept to himself, and he rarely spoke to neighbours. Police called his emergency contact listed on his rental application. This man, named Mike, was a former co-worker of Joe's. They worked together at a chemical plant for many years, though Joe had been laid off in 1997. Now, Mike was surprised to be listed because he really didn't know Joe. They worked together and had breakfast together a few times, but they weren't that close. No one was particularly close to Joe. Probably the most social thing they did together was a party that Mike threw for his wife's birthday. It was a costume party, and Joe showed up dressed as a mobster. Not only was his costume a surprise, the fact that he even showed up surprised everyone. And because Mike was the only real connection Joe had made, he made him executor of his will. Joe left behind a few possessions other than his truck. He did have about 80000 in the bank. Mike's role as executor was to find the people meant to inherit his money, so he hired a private investigator to track down Joseph Chandler's next of kin. Nothing came up in a standard background search. Joe hadn't served in the military, he had no credit cards or loans or anything that showed up in a standard credit report, and he had no criminal past. The private investigator then looked through other documents – Joe had a birth certificate showing that Joseph Newton Chandler was born in Buffalo, New York on March 11, 1937. Joe's father was born in Texas and his mother in Pennsylvania. So these were good places to start looking for extended family. He also found a 401k application that listed two siblings, a Mary Wilson and a George Chandler. Now, neither of these addresses provided for them were real, Mary Wilson would come up again on other forms requiring an emergency contact or next of kin, and he kept using the same address, which turned out not to exist. In Texas, though, a distant relative was found. After investigating that lead, it came out that Joseph Chandler had already died in 1945. Little Joseph Chandler was living in Tulsa with his parents. The family of three left Tulsa to go visit family in Texas for Christmas. A car coming in the opposite direction swerved to avoid a truck that was only halfway on the shoulder. They didn't see the Chandler's car coming. All three Chandlers died in that crash.
0: The Chandler family was then laid to rest. And over 30 years later, in 1978, someone used Little Joseph's birth certificate to request a social security card and had it mailed to a home in Rapid City, South Dakota. At this point, it wasn't uncommon for people to wait until they were adults to apply for Social Security cards, though it's standard now for parents to apply for the card at birth since we now need the number to file taxes. Except it would be odd for someone to be requesting a first-issue Social Security card at the age of 41. As an adult starting work for the first time, sure, but 41? That could have been at the time seen as a little bit of a red flag, but it was either not noticed or it wasn't a concern to the Social Security Administration. The home turned out to be a small home, almost like a caregiver shack behind a larger house. This address didn't help narrow things down, though, because the man who owned the property in 1978 had already died. His son confirmed that his dad rented the smaller home out, but he had no idea who would have lived there at the time. It's possible Joe lived there or knew someone who did, or maybe he just had the card mailed there and staked out the mailbox so he could intercept it. It's believed that after he got the Social Security card, he moved to Cleveland, Ohio. He took a job in Cleveland in the summer of 1981, and then he moved into his East Lake apartment in 1986 when he started working at Lubrizol, the chemical plant where he met Mike. He worked as an electrical engineer, and his co-workers found him quiet, distant, but brilliant at what he did. And he worked there until 1997 when he was laid off. Knowing Joe had no one else in his life, Mike called him occasionally, very occasionally, like once a year, just to check in on him. And he went to see him one time after a phone call left him concerned about Joe's health. Joe told him that he had colon cancer, he had had surgery for it, And he paid cash for the surgery because he didn't have health insurance. So he couldn't also afford the chemotherapy treatment he needed. Mike offered to help him apply for Medicare. For those outside the U.S., you've probably heard we don't have universal health insurance coverage here. However, Medicare is a federal health insurance coverage program that's available to Americans 65 and older. And Joe was likely eligible for that. If not Medicare, we also have Medicaid which is another federal health insurance, and that's available to people regardless of age if they qualify. And being that he didn't have a job and he was sick, he, he may have qualified. But Joe refused Mike's help in getting these applications filled out. In 1978, when he used a birth certificate to get a Social Security card, most of our documents and such were still on paper, But at this point, which was likely 2001, 2002, everything's digitized and easy to search. It's likely Joe worried that applying for government assistance using his Joseph Chandler ID would turn up the death record for the real Joseph Chandler. It's believed that his poor health was the deciding factor in taking his own life. The last time Mike spoke to Joe was four months prior to his death.
1: Joe had some quirks that may or may not help identify him. Apparently, he had a strong aversion to commercials in TV shows, and he had this device rigged up on his TV to turn off during the ads, and then it would turn back on when the show continued. He also got overwhelmed fairly easy from environmental noises, so he created his own portable white noise machine that he would use with headphones when he was at work or in public to help drown out sounds. As we said earlier, he wasn't terribly social. When Mike would eat with him, he wouldn't say much at all. As I said, they were surprised when he showed up at the costume party, where he really didn't talk to anyone anyway.
0: We're going to mention one thing briefly because you'll see it mentioned, but there's only one source to this information. Because of the lack of sourcing, you'll have to make up your own mind on this. It's been reported by one journalist that Joe was treated in the late 1980s at the hospital for a lacer- for lacerations on his penis that he claimed to doctors he got while masturbating with a vacuum. It seems a little odd to me that he wouldn't make up a cover story if this is what happened. And it's also odd to me that this would be a cover story if it isn't what happened. According to the same report, the doctor noted that he appeared to be older than he reported. Again, I'm kind of surprised the doctor would note that unless he appeared to be significantly older than he claimed to. But whatever, we're just putting that out there. You guys can do with that information, whatever you will.
1: Another time he drove from Ohio to Maine to go to the L.L. Bean store, this would have been a 26-hour round trip if he made zero stops. When he got to the L.L. Bean store, he reportedly couldn't find parking, so he turned around and drove back to Ohio without even going into the store. I have to imagine this story was self-reported by him to a co-worker because he went alone. It is possible, in my view, that he made up this story about going to Maine to cover for somewhere else he may have been for those 26-plus hours that he was gone. But it is a very odd cover story, like the vacuum cleaner.
0: So among Joe's possessions was a set of keys with his apartment key and truck key. There were five additional keys that went to unknown locks. There are also some odd gadgets around the apartment that he apparently made himself. Also found was a two thousand request for Joseph Chandler's birth certificate and a notarized copy sent by the state of New York. It's unclear why he needed this document again in two thousand. Also found was a sticker, a peanuts comic sticker. It's just a die cut sticker with the character Woodstock and the words "Way to Go" on it. The copyright is nineteen sixty five. And so you'll see it mentioned that he had a 1965 sticker or a sticker from 1965, but that actually doesn't mean that's when Joe got it or even when it was manufactured. That's just when that design was copyrighted. Okay, so I went online onto eBay to look for vintage peanut stickers to see if I could actually find this one. I learned a lot about vintage stickers. There's quite a market out there, but nothing pertinent to this case. 1965 does predate when he became Joseph Chandler. So if this is something he kept from his old life, it reminds me of the Annandale Jane Doe story that we talked about. She had a worn-out Minnie Mouse fanny pack with her. It was out of place, and it was something that makes you think it may have been more important than the other things around her. So if this sticker really did come from before he became Joseph Chandler, might have some meaning. The private investigator was able to get his job history, or at least his self-reported job history, that is, from 1966 until 1980. He claimed to have worked at three different companies in California. At least one of them had never heard of him and never had an employee fitting his description. I haven't seen where the other two agencies responded. Both were pending on the paperwork I saw. But clearly, this hasn't led anywhere. Another thing someone remembers him saying in passing is that he was once
1: married to a Cuban woman. Joe owned an old computer. Most reports said it was damaged somehow and it didn't work. But the private investigator who was first on the case said it did work at some point and there were searches about plastic explosives and Nazism on the computer. But random computer searches don't necessarily help narrow down who Joe actually was. So let's go through the usual, dental records, fingerprints, and DNA. First, the dental records. These were no help because all the dental work they could find, recorded, had happened after 1978, and that's when he assumed the new identity. So it all came back to Joseph Chandler. Fingerprints and DNA were harder to get. First, the advanced decomposition of Joe probably would have made fingerprinting him difficult. But remember at this point they had no idea he wasn't who he said he was. They had him in the apartment he'd been in since 1986 with all the documents with Joseph Chandler on them and Mike identified them. So a lot of these steps that would have been taken if they suspected something else other than suicide they weren't taken. And in fact Joe was cremated before they could get a DNA sample. They dusted his apartment and vehicle for prints and they did get two. But both matched investigators on the case. There was a partial print on an ashtray found in Joe's truck, but every other print in his entire apartment was smudged and unusable. For DNA, they were able to get this. In 2000, Joe had been in hospital. If this was related to his colon cancer biopsy or possibly surgery, look, we don't know. But the hospital did have something of his they could test. Possibly this was tissue or blood. So dental records and fingerprints were a no-go, but they did have his DNA on file.
0: So this brings us to who was he? This is all the information that we have publicly available. I'm sure the police have more. The theory held by some investigators is that he was a criminal, a fugitive. He was trying to live undetected. He went to great lengths to conceal his identity and to keep to himself like one would if they were trying to evade the law. One theory is that he was one of the escaped men from Alcatraz. In 1962, three men left Alcatraz Island, and they've never been seen again. There's a lot of debate over if it was even possible for them to have made it to shore, or if they probably drowned in their attempt. The three men were born in 1926, 1930, and 1931. And it's estimated that Joe was likely born between 1932 and 1937, so it's slightly outside this range, but definitely possible. The real question with the Alcatraz theory, though, is who was he from 1962 when they escaped until 1978 when he became Joseph Chandler? And why did it take him so long to settle an identity? And if he was changing identities for some reason, why did he then keep this one for so long? There's also a fugitive wanted from California named Stephen Campbell who comes up frequently He is wanted for attempted murder, and in my opinion, looking at the pictures, I can see a resemblance between him and Joe, and he was also an electrical engineer. He comes up a lot in these case discussions, but he was 6'2", Joe was only 5'7". Even accounting for shrinking due to age, I can't imagine he would have shrunk from 6'2 to 5'7".
1: Another fugitive he's believed to be is an unknown fugitive known only as the Zodiac Killer. The Zodiac Killer was a serial killer in Northern California with seven confirmed attacks in the years 1968 and 1969, although there are other suspected attacks as early as 1963 and as late as 1970, and these attacks were largely on couples. Because we don't know who he is, we also don't know why he stopped killing, or if he actually did stop. It is possible he just moved on to another area. And that's where Joe comes in. Between 1979 and 1982, four couples were killed in a similar fashion. It's not entirely known if these cases were linked. While they match the Zodiac in some ways, in other ways they don't. For instance, the Ohio lovers' murders were spread out over three years, rather than several murders in about 10 to 12 months the murderer or murderers also didn't send letters to the papers or to the police as the Zodiac did. Now, this theory is based on two things. One, people did see a resemblance between the composite sketch of the Zodiac and Joe. And two, around the same year Joe showed up in Ohio, the Zodiac-style murders began.
0: As far as being an escaped fugitive or on the run because he's a suspected Zodiac killer, I mean, I don't think he's the Zodiac killer, but I do think... Being a fugitive makes sense.
1: He's not the Zodiac Killer.
0: Yeah, he, he's very unlikely the Zodiac Killer. It would be interesting if he was, but very unlikely. But not only people who are fugitives from the law necessarily are the ones who are trying to lay low. He may not have committed a violent crime, but maybe he was a deadbeat dad or a husband who ran out on his wife and didn't want to be found. It's possible he faked his own death and no one's looking for him, so he wouldn't show up in any databases of missing or wanted people. And there are other theories that have been floated. These are a couple random ones. One is that he may have been a World War II German soldier and he was trying to start over in the U.S. I think his computer search on Nazism is what leads people to think this. He may have been wanted for war crimes or it's possible he's just a soldier. And didn't want to deal with the prejudices that might follow him in post-World War II America. The biggest issue I have with this is that he was kind of young for being a German soldier. Even if we assumed the earliest birth date in the range of 1932, he would have been about 13 years old when Germany surrendered. And the second issue is he started over in 1978, which is 33 years after Germany surrendered, Another possibility floated is that Joe was really an Australian man named Elmer Crawford, who disappeared after killing his wife and children in Victoria. In 2005, a man with numerous aliases and sanded off fingerprints died of a heart attack in Texas. And the basic stats were correct. Height, eye color, and even an odd deformity of the left ear. But DNA from a relative of Crawford's excluded this man. So the eventual whereabouts of Crawford are unknown, He would be 87 years old today if he were alive, but I don't think he fits Joseph Chandler very well. He comes up because he's a rather famous fugitive, I think, kind of like the Zodiac Killer is a famous killer. So he's going to come up again, moving even further away from him even being a fugitive, though, like I said, that's the most popular theory. He may be a missing person. James L. Lampman went missing from California in early 1978, just months before Joseph Chandler requested a copy of the birth certificate. The height, age, and builds all match. There aren't a lot of details on Lampman, so it's unclear how thoroughly his disappearance was even investigated, or if police suspected foul play, or if they thought he did leave on his own. The only discrepancy I can see with this limited information is that Lampman's eyes are reported as blue, and Joe's are reported as gray. But I don't see this as a huge deal. Gray eyes often appear blue. We don't know how James's eyes were reported. Did someone who knows him from work say he was blue, or did he check that box on a form? We don't know why they say they're blue, but blue and gray are very close.
1: It's always possible the answer of who Jo really was is similar to the answer of who Laurie Erica Ruff was. Now, Laurie's case was a popular case, and a lot of people wanted to learn who this woman really was, and there were theories ranging from her being an abducted child, to a cult member who fled, to a fugitive of the law. When her identity was discovered, she was simply a woman who cut off contact with her parents and family willingly. Now, why she went to great lengths to not ever be found, we may never know. There is probably more to the story there, but it certainly wasn't as fantastic as some of our imaginations led us to believe, mine and Charlie's included. Perhaps Joe was just a guy who decided he wanted no more contact with his family, and to make that happen, he just assumed another identity.
0: And bringing up Lori Erica Ruff, this case also involves someone who was involved in solving that one. Dr. Colleen M. Fitzpatrick, a forensic genealogist, assisted in helping track down Lori's identity. Dr. Fitzpatrick uses Y-DNA to narrow down a family name for an unknown person. Y-DNA is only passed down on the paternal lines, and in the U.S., it's customary for children to take on the last name of their father. Using Joe's Y-DNA and searching against publicly available databases, she came back with a hit for the surname Nicholas. There are some limits to this. If Joe or his father or his father's father were adopted, the Nicholas name may be unknown to the family. Or if the father was not identified properly on the birth certificate, they may not know they're connected to the Nicholas family. Or they didn't take the father's surname for whatever reason. But this is a start. And honestly, it's a lead. And it's a lead they didn't have before 2016. So the thing that fascinates me about Doe cases is just, they just feel like these big mysteries. And like with Lori Caruff it was such a simple solution. So perhaps these two also have simple solutions. Joseph Chandler, very much as I feel with the Annandale Jane Doe, didn't want his identity known in death. But I think Kelly Carr's family, I think giving her back her name, especially since it was likely taken from her by traffickers would be a great service to her. And I hope that one day they do solve these. Thank you guys for listening. Again, this is being pre-recorded, So we will just go through our um, housekeeping real quick. Facebook, we have a group, we have a page. We have Twitter at InsightfulPod. We have Instagram at InsightPod. You can email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. We have PayPal on our website, insightpod.com, for a one-off donation, or if you want to give monthly, we have bonus episodes and merch rewards on patreon.com slash insightpod. We will both be back very soon, every week. So we appreciate everyone for just being so accepting and loving of our guests over the last couple of months.